your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Pitch, hot shot, base hit down the left field line. Roscoe will score. Here comes Cervantes. He's being waved home. Acker also being waved home. And the relay throw to the plate is not in time. It's a bases clearing double by Bryce Matthews, and the Cornhuskers lead it four to nothing. Sports Nightly is presented by the NDOT Highway Safety Office, who reminds you to buckle up and put the phone down. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Here we are back for another night of Sports Nightly. Thank, thank you so much for spending some of your Tuesday evening with us. Nice day out there, spring-like day. Had a chance to get outside and take the dog for a walk. Did a little yard work today. It's a good, productive day. Coming up in the program tonight, Sam McEwen of the Omaha World Herald is going to join us in a little bit. We'll get his take on what he's been hearing from coaches and players for the Huskers spring practice, which is nearing the midway point as they motor their way toward a May 1st spring game. Open practice Saturday, 4,000 fans going to be allowed through the gates at Memorial Stadium. So we'll get the Sam's thoughts about Husker football here in a little bit. Hour number two, it's our Probably our final volleyball show of the year with John Cook, John Bader. Coach Cook is in the bubble. The Huskers went up to Omaha yesterday. They have entered the NCAA tournament bubble. As Tim told you in the open, Nebraska will play Thursday at 2.30 against the winner of Texas State-Utah Valley. They play on Wednesday. There are 16 matches on Wednesday. And so by the time you get to Thursday, you're now to 32 teams left in the tournament. So the Huskers... With because they're one of the top 16 seeds, they're the number five. They get a bye. They do not have to play day one, so they'll play day two. Just need to win one match to get to the Sweet 16 round. So, Oscar Volleyball will be taking the airways tonight with the coaches' show from seven to eight. So, get your comments, questions ready for the head coach during hour number two. It is Top Ten Tuesday, and Tim kind of touched on this last night with the great success of the Oscar Bowling Team winning their sixth. NCAA championship and their eighth national championship. We thought we'd do a deep dive into college sports dynasties. Oh, this is going to be a blast. We're going to get into that in hour number three with our top 10 list. And we'll talk to Paul Klempa, the Oscar bowling coach in hour number three as well. Get his take about what his team accomplished in the last week down in Kansas city, claiming that national championship on Saturday night. Can't wait to talk to the coach that in hour number three. And as always, it is your show. Here are the numbers five, three, one, five hundred forty six, eighty six. Either dial us up with a uh, comment, call, or a text. You can text us on our U.S. Cellular text line. Proud to be the official wireless sponsor of the Huskers, U.S. Cellular Connecting Husker Nation. Gave Ben the, the day off yesterday, so Tim sat in for him. Hope you had a good restful day, and you're back and ready to roll, right? Yeah, feel great, rejuvenated, and couldn't be more fired up to be here on a Tuesday. Part of your rejuvenation has to be being out at Haymarket Park over the weekend and watching that team win another series, right? Man, that was fun, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know that uh, either of us knew what, what to expect on Sunday when we showed up. That, that Maryland team was playing good baseball going into the weekend, and, you know, I think we uh, we, we sat back and, you know, we're, we're ready to watch another weekend of, of Husker baseball. And just a phenomenal, phenomenal Sunday from Shea Shanneman. Uh, that's twice at home he's provided Nebraska with 
just an absolute gem of a start. And the offense getting a couple of big numbers and the fireworks there in the seventh inning to kind of put a cap on the series. Yeah, it was a great way to cap off the weekend. I know the boys are uh, feel, feeling really good as they get ready to head out east to State College here in a few days. Want to bring to you everyone's attention, Kendall Rogers, who's the uh, chief writer for D1 Baseball, covers college baseball, does a great job, and uh, has his finger on the pulse of the landscape. Somebody tweeted at him today, does Nebraska have any chance of being a host school for a regional? And he wrote back, if Nebraska, when the regionals are announced, and that's in a couple of weeks, they're going to do that in early May, if at that point in time Nebraska leads the Big Ten, he believes Nebraska will be a regional host. Now, that's one guy. It's one guy's opinion. He's not on the committee. He's not in the room that makes those decisions. Let's put that out there. That, But uh, that's a guy certainly that I think has the ear of a lot of people that will be on the committee and in the room. So if you need, if this team needs some motivation for the next couple of weekends, that might be it right there, right? I mean, the thought of having a, a regional in Lincoln, in Lincoln in early June, wow, that's got to fire you up. Yeah, Kendall's, Kendall's is about as hooked up as it gets around the uh... – around the world of college baseball and he's usually pretty dead on and you know I put out a tweet this weekend about wanting Nebraska to some to get some of that national attention and I understand that a lot of times where attention isn't a great thing but but I think fans need to understand it's a little different in the world of college baseball where there are so many teams so many programs and it's not college football where every game is televised and there are national writers at every major game. It's just there's not that amount of uh, of dedication for it. So it's important for your program to stand out. And while what these writers say, does it end up mattering? Not really. Does it matter if Nebraska's ranked? Probably not really. But what matters is to get on the eyes and the radar of these committee members and, and to get Nebraska in the mix with in those conversations. That is important. And it does help when you have, you know, people tweet about your program and you know positive momentum and positive things being said about your team to get them on the radar you know to be honest with you I wouldn't be uh, too knowledgeable about what's going on in South Bend Indiana with their baseball team if it weren't for those types of guys now I've been doing a lot more paying attention to what Notre Dame's doing on the field the last few weeks because of it but that's just one example Greg I can't imagine you're too caught up on what's going on with Notre Dame baseball this year but these guys have a lot of influence and when you see tweets and stories and names and rankings of of particular teams it catches your interest as a baseball fan and the committee members are going to be no different no doubt. We'll keep following that and what the Husker team needs to do, just go out and keep winning. But this is an odd year because the, nobody in the Big Ten is playing anybody outside the league. They're going to be judged differently by the committee than they have in the years past. The RPI means absolutely nothing to Big Ten teams because they have there's nobody to balance it from outside the conference. So uh, the committee is going to have to have a different discussion this year as it relates to the Big Ten. So the more that people, national people, are talking about Nebraska, the more likely that they will certainly be on a radar. The best thing they can do is go win the league, get the automatic bid, and not worry about getting an at large bid. But a um, lot to play for. And Friday night's game, I think I mentioned this last night, Friday night's game will be game number 22. That will mark the halfway point of the season. Kind of feels like we're a little further beyond that, but it is not. It's going to be the halfway point of of the season when they play that Friday game in State College. It's a 5 o'clock first pitch 
4.30 for pregame coverage on Friday. Well, uh, Husker football, no practice today, so no media availability. We will have media availability tomorrow after the workout and then the, the Saturday uh, open practice with uh, letting 4,000 folks come through the gates to watch. Ben's planning on being there for that. A lot of lot of a lot of information yesterday. The head coach met with the media. They did have a full-blown scrimmage last Friday. What what stood out to you as you heard the comments of the head coach talking about the various uh, parts of the scrimmage that the, the team held, about 120-play scrimmage last Friday? I think probably the thing that stood out to me the most was his praise for some of the parts to his offense, particularly the wide receivers, saying that you know they had their best day and just very complimentary of a lot of different guys in that room saying it's the most talent that he's seen in that room um, since he's been here. I think that that definitely stood out to me because because there are so many unproven names, at least in a Nebraska uniform, or guys that we're um, not really too familiar with what they can do. Um, that that's been that that's been interesting to follow. But I also think that uh, you know the interesting thing was his words on Logan Smothers about the way that he performed. And how uh, you know he was able to to throw the ball. So I'm intrigued to see um, some of those things for my myself here in less than a week. But I think those are probably the things that stuck out to me the most. Yeah, best day as a Husker. I think that was the term that he tagged with Logan Smothers and talked about Heinrich said we're not going to touch that throwing motion. The ball really flies out of his hand. Um, we, we've heard from a couple different players that, that Heinrich has had a really good spring camp. So, yeah, the, the, the attention, the eyeballs on those guys Saturday will be huge. Same thing for May the 1st for the spring game. How do they perform in front of tens of thousands of people that will be out there on May the 1st? Those can certainly be game changers. I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was one of the Mike Riley teams, and they were pretty high on what they were seeing from Riker Fife. And Riker had a bad spring game. He just he did. He just did not look very good. Other quarterbacks looked better than he did. And you, you kind of leave that game going, wow. And I know the coaches went out there going, geez, we, Riker, we thought you'd be better than that. But it's different when you get in there and there's more people watching or anybody in there watching you. Some guys handle it better than others. So that'll be interesting on Saturday to see that. Also, Ben, Another name drop of Gabe Irvin coming from this time from the head coach about how he's done some nice things. That seems to be popping up more and more. I cannot wait to to get my eyes on him and see him in person with pads on and what he looks like. Yeah, definitely keeps coming up, right? I mean, I, th- I kind of feel like if you were to make a list of names, this is probably one of the most popular names of the spring. And I think part of it has to do with the injury to Marquis step. But I think the other part of it has to do with the, just the overall depth in the room and, and his skill set. I think those things are kind of playing well off of each other right now. So yeah, I definitely think that, you know, this is a guy that's gained a lot of popularity and rightfully so. And I'm eager to, to see him in person and, and see what type of characteristics he possesses as a back that's been an interesting study. Uh, I was talking with some family over the weekend that aren't really from Nebraska, just about football and, and the Huskers, and the running back position came up. And you think about just the build of, of the guys that have been toting the rock under Coach Frost, right? Divina Zigbo, and you know you look at his build, and obviously uh, with Diedrich. Diedrich Mills, kind of yep. pretty similar builds. But 
Then you have guys like Ramir Johnson and Wandale Robinson and Maurice Washington, guys that aren't overly big. So it's been an interesting mix of really small guys and slender guys and uh, players that can do a lot of different things out of the backfield with Wandale and, and, and Maurice. Um, but then you also have had, have had the big hammer uh, with Devine and Diedrich. So I don't really know what this running back position is going to look like next year, but I'm intrigued by it. Yep. Also, the one of the comments from the coach, he thought the wide receiver play in the scrimmage last week was as good as he's seen at Nebraska from that position group. He mentioned Omar Manning, um, who seems to be larger than life in some talks. We just now need to see it on a game day actually happen for him. He mentioned Samari and his transition from uh, FCS to this level. He mentioned Will Nixon. He mentioned Levi Falk and Oliver Martin and Seemed to like what he has of that group. And as I mentioned to Tim last night, that's great. I think there is some talent there. And then you're going to add the three high school kids here in June. I, I think the potential's really there for that group to be a strength of this team once you get deep into the season next fall. I hope I hope that's the case because if that's the case, this offense could really hum along. You get, you'll get a chance to get your eyes on some of those guys on Saturday. Yeah, I will. And, and like I've been saying all spring, I think this is probably the – the the group that interests me the most with the running backs I don't know if you can lump the two together but you know we need to see some major production increases from that position group this year and I think the coaches feel like uh, they have some personnel to do that I know coach coach Frost kind of subtly mentioned pushing the ball downfield more and one of his clips uh, didn't make it a, a, a you know a huge deal but he did say push the ball down the field I think that's something that we all want to see more of this year um and you know we'll see what what type of steps forward Xavier Betts and Omar Manning uh Wyatt Lever and Levi Falk Oliver Martin all of these players start to possess and then you think of guys on the inside with Alante Brown and and Will Nixon and Samari Toure you know I, I'm intrigued to find out what, which which batch of these guys or or all of them or some of them or none of them are are capable of carrying that torch for Nebraska's offense in the in the receiving spot next fall Yep, going to be fun. All right, those are, those are some of the top stories we're looking at tonight here on the program, 531-500-4686. When we come back, we'll be joined by Sam McEwen of the Omaha World Herald. We'll get his take of some of the highs and some of the uh, things that he's dug up reporting on Husker football over the last month. We'll dive into that next. We're back on a Tuesday Night Sports Sunday here on the Husker Sports Network. It's been a while, but we have... Able to secure Sam McEwen of the Omaha World Herald to come on board tonight. You also read Sam's work online at Omaha.com. Fun time of year, isn't it, Sam? The weather's getting better. You got spring football to talk and write about. Good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, I'm enjoying going to, to practice again. It was a long wait, and I'm glad that we're doing it. And uh, you know, it, I, I mean, it's been kind of enlightening. I. I hope to see practice on Saturday. That'll be even more enlightening, but it does seem like Nebraska football players and coaches are happy to be back at just a normal year, a relatively normal compared to last year. Were you, were you taken back at all by how, how positive the head coach seemed to be about his offense yesterday? Because he was, I mean, he talked about best wide receiver, you know, performances that he has seen, best Logan Smothers he had seen. What'd you make of all that? Well, I, you know, I, I was a little surprised by the wide receiver comment. Um, but, you know, I mean, they have had problems now for the last 
you know, for the last two years. And so I can see him feeling good about the talent in the room. It, it is easy to forget that, you know, when they got Oliver Martin, they got a four-star receiver. They have recruited a bunch of guys that have high star ratings, including Omar Manning. They got a, they got a guy in Samari Ture who's, you know, one of the one of the top receivers in FCS two years ago. So this is this is not a group that you would describe as, you know, just uh, just just poor. I, I think he feels really good about the people in the room. And I also feel like he feels better about the, the, the coaching they're getting. That's not to knock the guy that 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 was uh, before Matt Lubick, but but I just think he feels like it's all fitting together better. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, he's he's been a big Matt Lubick fan. What the the running back position to me is really intriguing, and now maybe yeah. without Step being there out until maybe June, that that takes a hit. But we keep hearing the name Gabe Irvin come up from different players, coaches. What do you make of that position halfway through spring ball? Well, there's a position where if a, if a true freshman is going to emerge, they really can emerge at running back. That, 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 that's happened a lot of, in a lot of schools in the Big Ten. Uh, it's happened at times at Nebraska, whether it was Amon Green or David Horn or uh, Brandon Jackson or, you know, uh, Rex Burkett. So this happens. This is not uncommon. If, if Gabe Irvin really is, um, you know, that guy, uh, that, that's great news for Nebraska because they need to find somebody, Greg. Uh, the other guy that was named on, on Monday is Jaquez Yant. You know, he is a bigger back. He's about 225 pounds, and he is probably your, I don't know what the right word is for him, your your thumper back. That's what, gosh, who used to call him that? Sean Watson, I think, back in the day used to call him thumpers. And I think he's kind of a thumper. He's a downhill, short yardage guy. I don't know that I would describe him as your down-in, down-out guy, but, but maybe they feel like they can, they can do something with him, uh, you know, that's, similar similar to what they were doing with Mills, but maybe not every down. Um, so he and Marvin Scott are probably in a battle for playing time. Scott's got to get back and, and do something about that. Um, and then, you know, I guess we'll we'll see from there what they do. That, that position does need to get better. And if he's healthy, I am most interested to see Sevion Morrison on Saturday. Uh, I think Morrison's got an immense amount of talent. And he's a guy that that could that could do some really big things if he's healthy. Visiting again with Sam McCune of the Omaha World Herald. You can read Sam's work also online at omaha.com. Boy, we've heard a lot about special teams, have we not, in the last two weeks from practically yeah. everybody that has stepped up to the podium. Cam Tater Britt talked quite a bit about it yesterday as well. What what's your takeaway of what their the emphasis they appear to be putting on that phase of the game? I think the biggest takeaway is that there is a real emphasis. And I'm, I mean, I, I, I covered the team for the first three years. Last year was kind of goofy because of COVID, but the first two years, I just don't feel like there was that level of emphasis on special teams, especially when there were situations where the head coach didn't exactly know what was going on on a given play. Wasn't sure why, you know, wasn't sure why X, Y, and Z had happened. Um, you know, and I just don't think that's going to be the case anymore. I, I, I think they've probably identified, hey, guys, you know, if, if we catch a punt at Iowa, we probably win that game. If we, you know, if we make a field goal against Minnesota, people forget that missed field goal in the third quarter of that game against Minnesota. 
you know, that, that game's tied. It's 17-17 instead of 17-14. Hey, guys, if we make some punts a little bit better, um, we're, we're in a game. We probably beat Wisconsin in 2019 if we don't give up that, you know, kickoff return for a score. So all those things, I think, accumulated over time, and I think they understand now how important it is. Um, Cam Taylor-Britt is a guy that you would want on all those teams. Still a question mark at punter um, and still a question mark at kickoff uh, specialist. And the only way you can answer those questions is with the right or left foot of those guys because that's the deal where you've got to recruit the guy. Uh, you've got, there's not a lot you can teach. Those guys come and they can either do it or they can't. And uh, they, did, they did a nice thing, for example, with Connor Culp last year with that sky right and it worked real nice in the first couple games. By the end of the season, teams had adjusted and, you know, they're starting at the 44. So, um, you know, there's certain things that you can try to coach, but what you really need are the guys that can just kick it through the end zone when you need it and can kick a 59-yard punt and pin them against the sideline. You need those players on your team. All right, the practice is going to be open on Saturday. I, uh, I imagine you're going to be there. What, it, what, what's going to catch? What are you going to be looking for when you watch that thing on Saturday? You know, I've kind of made a – I'm going to write this later this week, Greg. I, I made kind of a list of, like, yeah. here are the players that I'm really interested to see, right? And so some others is at the top. Um, I think I know what I'm going to see from Martinez. Uh, he talked about it, and Adrian's an honest guy. So I think we're going to see a faster Martinez who's also willing to throw the ball further downfield. Logan Smothers really interests me, and that's because I think Logan can really run. And the passing piece is the thing he had to put together, and, and I think he um, – it sounds like that's going well. So he's very high on my list. Of course, the receivers are important. You want to see how they do. Um, I suspect they're going to do well. Uh, Gabe Irvin and Sevion Morrison are really high on my list too. Um, and that's not a knock on Yant. I'm sure he can do some good things too. But Morrison is a player that I just I'm curious to see. And then I think Gabe Irvin uh, is a, a guy that's caught their eye. Thomas Fedoni, obviously, although he's in the number three tight end, so we don't need to overshoot. You know what he might do in year one. He might be really really good, but he also might only have you know 15 catches uh, with this wide receiver and this tight end crew on the defensive side of the ball. Um, you know, I, I think everybody kind of knows what they've got in those back-end guys. I think the inside linebackers are going to be the best that Nebraska's had in a long time when you consider all four of them. So Honus, Kalabarik, um, Reimer, and Henrich, I think that's the strongest group they've had inside ooh, in a long time. I mean, uh, you might have to go back to, you know, Will Compton and Levante David. Now, Compton and David were better, but – but you might have to go back to there to find a group of inside backers who are as good as I think this group of four can be. Uh, I will be looking at pass rush, you know. Can they get – do they have – is Seldarius Payne a little further along? Um, what are they getting out of Blaze Gunnarsson, Jamari Butler? I will say this. When we went and watched practice last Wednesday, Mike Dawson was really coaching Gunnarsson and Butler hard. I think it's very clear that those two guys have the body type and the athleticism that they are looking for at that position, but they're raw because Gunnarsson was hurt. He didn't get a lot of practice time last year. And then Butler, you know, he didn't really get a spring camp. And so I, what I saw from Dawson, I stayed down there and watched those guys more than the QBs. He was really coaching them. It's like they really want to get those two guys up to speed because they've got some talent that maybe some of the older guys don't have 
as pass rushers, and so I'll be curious to see how they do as well. This defense has, I think, the potential to be a top 25 defense. Would you agree with that and what needs to happen for them to be at that level in the fall? I absolutely agree with that, Greg. I I think the one thing I just mentioned is the one thing that they're probably going to be working on all the way to kick off against Illinois, and that's pass rush. I think their I think their scheme is 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 uh, what do you want to call it? Flexible and interchangeable, and I think they've got the inside backers to stop the run. I think those outside backers are good run stoppers. I mean, I think Garrett Nelson is really good. You know, JoJo sets a good edge, and Teldarius is good at that stuff too. And then their safeties, they come up and they fill. So Dismuke and Williams will smack you in the alley. So I think their run defense is going to be outstanding. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to always say, is it going to be top 20? Is it going to be top 30? I just think it's going to be really good. And I think it's going to, they're probably going to deter teams from wanting to run the ball at some point. Um, they've had some defenses where, you know, maybe they gave up 4.3 yards of carry, but the teams were only running it 22 times because they, they didn't want to bother with it. They're just like, we can't run the ball. Um, so it might be one of those deals, and then teams might say, all right, we're going to try to throw it, and that's where you hope they can get a pass rush. They've got a very good corner in Cam Taylor Britt. I think Quentin Newsom is an NFL caliber corner. I think he'll win the job over on the other side, but you never know. Maybe he won't. And then you've got the two safeties plus Miles Farmer, who's going to rotate in that group. That that question mark is on third and seven. Can you get the pass rush? Can you get? Do you have a guy that can go get the sack, or do you have a scheme that does not compromise your back end? And that's to me, they're going to be a top thirty defense without that pass rush. If they have it and they find a guy who can do it. They might be a lot better than top twenty-five. It's, they have a lot of all. They got all those pieces. It would just be great if they had a guy who could go get the quarterback and strip the quarterback of the ball, you know, and force a fumble that way versus trying to strip it from the ball carrier. Um, they've got to get some more uh, force fumbles in the quarterback category, and you do that usually when you're getting after the QB. Very good. All right, last thing. Uh, you fired a question at the coach yesterday about the one-time transfer rule. Are we going to hear about that this week? What do you, and what do you think the, the verdict is going to be from the NCAA? We should hear about it on Thursday, April 15th. Um, I think the NCAA is going to go ahead and let it happen. They've already kind of planned it. And if they don't, then they're going to be in charge of having to approve all these waivers. And I don't think they want to do that anymore. Uh, so I think you're going to see it happen. Now, for volleyball fans, it already happens in volleyball. Almost never is a, is a volleyball player restricted from playing the very following year. Uh, we all know Lexi Sun uh, obviously did that when she came from Texas to Nebraska. So it's already been kind of in place in volleyball. Uh, it's been in place in some other sports, too. Um, I think that in basketball, I'll be honest, I think it's going to work okay because basketball teams can replenish their rosters with as many scholarships as they want. There is, I don't know how to put this, there's a kind of camaraderie in basketball among the coaches, among the programs, where guys kind of find their way through it, and guys kind of find new schools. You know, Ivan Drago went to Grand Canyon. Uh, some other guys that are transferring are going to find spots. Wouldn't surprise me if a Cole uh, lands out with Tim Miles out in San Jose State. 
they just find a way. Like, coaches work together there. It's just a little different. In football, that don't happen as much. And in football, they have a limit of 25 scholarships per year. And in having that limit, one of the issues that they've got is they they still want to take 20 to 22 high school kids, which means they only have room for three tight, you know, three transfers. Now, Nebraska had room for five. And they took 20 high school kids, and they took two, three transfers, and Ture, Kalabarik, and, and uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the last one, but the other one. Um, and so they have two spots left, Seth, and they have two spots left. But most teams are going to sign at least 20, trans, uh, 20 high school kids a year. And so what I would suggest is you create a five-scholarship dispensation just for four-year transfers, not not junior college and not high school. I would not allow a 30 scholarship limit, and here's why. Ohio State and Alabama will just sign all the kids. They'll, all, all they'll do is go out and get five more five stars, and you don't want that. What you want is to create a specific market for these transfers, and I think if you gave schools five more, I think you could resolve some of these issues because there's some good football players in that, tra- in that portal who are going to junior college, or, and they kind of know they're good, and they're like, I don't really want to go to FCS. I don't really want to go to Texas State, so I kind of got to go to JUCO. And they don't, they don't always, like, you've got to figure out a way to kind of juice the portal a little bit so that you can get some kids out of there. There's probably some kids that Nebraska would have liked to have taken, but the reality is they only have two, and at least one of those has to be saved for the potential need for a quarterback. And so Nebraska already knows that, they can't go out and get, you know, three pass rushers. They might want it that. Uh, they lost, I think they lost two or three in the offseason, but they can't really do it because they're kind of full up. So I would say a five scholarship dispensation for four year transfers solves a lot of the problem. But as it stands right now, it's going to, I think it's going to work fine in basketball. I think it's going to be kind of a pain in football. Very good. We'll look forward to that on Thursday. Sam, great stuff as always. We appreciate the time. Thank you. All right. Take care, sir. This is the Nebraska Volleyball Radio Show, right here on the Husker Sports Network. Here comes the serve. That one's in. Pass made by Kayleigh. The slide stiffens. Kaboom! Hoo-hoo! Wow! That's waking babies all over Greater Ann Arbor. 23-19, Big Red. With Husker head volleyball coach, John Cook. And now Michigan feeds left page. Jones blocked! Kayla Caffey, Lexi's son. Wow! 22-13 in the Huskers. Eight blocks in this match. The Nebraska Radio Volleyball Show is presented by Sarter Heyman Jewelers, your Husker Jewelry Headquarters. Sarter Heyman, the official jeweler of Husker Athletics at SarterHeyman.com. Now here's your host of the Nebraska Volleyball Show, John Baylor. Greetings, Nebraska. Hello, hello. March Madness has given way to April insanity. Nebraska Volleyball embarks on your spring 2021 NCAA tournament Thursday. The Huskers first serve at 2.30 Central. Our 30-minute pregame begins at 2 p.m. Central. So employers... Be forgiving. Employees may be a bit distracted. 2 p.m. pregame, 2.30 first serve. The opponent will be either the Texas State Bobcats, 30-8, and, and your Sun Belt Conference 
champions. In fact, they play the majority of those matches in the fall. And this spring, their uh, record was 6-6, six and six, only 500, largely because of a big upgrade in their schedule. And their most recent match, a victory over Baylor, which is a seeded team in the NCAA tournament. So Texas State Bobcats, probably the favorite in the first round in their match tomorrow, also a 2.30 start against the Utah Valley Wolverines, 14-5. and five. And Utah Valley's Wolverines are your WAC conference champions. So Utah Valley, probably the underdog against Texas State, the Bobcats, third consecutive NCAA tournament. And in 2018, they got a win in the first round over Rice. In 2019, they lost in the first round to Pepperdine. And they're back again this year, building a nice little dynasty down there in the Sunbelt Conference, the Texas State Bobcats. And your Huskers finally, after a 20-day layoff, Back in action Thursday, the matinee at 2.30. It will be the second round of this 48-team NCAA tournament. So by the time Thursday rolls around, we'll be down to just 32 teams, 32 teams in this 2021 NCAA Division I tournament. 531-500-4686. 531-500-4686. Your access code to join us on this the Nebraska Volleyball Show. I'm John Baylor. Let's bring in the head coach of the Huskers. And here's head coach, John Cook. Coach, good evening. Good evening, JB. How are you doing? I'm okay. Does that get you fired up that uh, we're finally here and finally you get a chance to stare at some other players with different jerseys through that net? It'll be interesting. It's been a while <laughs> since we have, but uh, I'm just curious, who's in the WAC conference these days? You're always trying to test me. Oh, when I think of the WAC conference, I think of like Mark Wilson slinging footballs uh, in the fall for BYU. But that, that's uh, your parents' WAC is is not the uh, the current WAC conference. Utah Valley, uh, they uh, played New Mexico State. They played Tarleton in Texas. Cal Baptist and uh, Grand Canyon. So this is certainly a reconfigured WAC conference. Yeah, but is that is that really the WAC conference, or are these just teams that they're playing? I mean, I've lost track of the old WAC. That was used used to be a great conference. They they did absolutely they did lose to Grand Canyon uh, in three straight, which shows that they're uh, they struggle against national parks. But then they came back and beat Grand Canyon twice, uh, finished off the regular season, and then once in the WAC tournament. So yeah, Grand Canyon's in there. New Mexico State's in there. And uh, I'll get you the rest of the, the WAC conference. But it's not the, that great football conference we grew up with. Yeah, I know. I know. So, anyway, but I agree with you. I think Texas State might be favored. They played – I mean, I think they played enough matches. They should be illegal. <laughs> 30 and 8. They played 38 matches. This is like the 1970s. When, I know. Uh, you don't I – mean, you win the national championship, you don't play that many matches. So, I don't, I don't know how the heck they did that. Yeah, they played a ton of matches in the in the fall, and then uh, just six and six this spring. But uh, they got your attention because they beat Baylor, so that's a team that uh, oh, yeah. they can play well. Yep, yep. And uh, you know Baylor was in the Final Four last year, so this is a, you know this this I think this tournament is going to be crazy. I just see the setup setups over there. I've seen pictures of the setup, and it's just going to be so unusual. Uh, I. I just, I think it's going to be. I just think it's going to be wild. 
Have you been over to the convention center yet to witness it firsthand? No. Uh, we, we've been over there for testing, but testing's in a different area than where the courts are. It's upstairs. Uh, so, uh, but we've seen pictures of it, and our players have talked to some other players who have had practice. So, um, uh, yeah, but we've seen the pictures, and uh, I actually uh, have seen the uh, um, feed, video feed that you might be calling the game off of. So, have fun. <laughs> What can you what can you tell me about the video feed? Is it is it an iPhone and someone's holding it up? Uh, that might be it. <laughs> now, now we're actually getting some uh, videos, images of the uh, the convention floor right now, and it looks like they've got the UNO floor. They look at they have a Husker floor, and they have a Creighton floor in the convention area where these matches will be played. I assume those are the TerraFlex floors that the the teams typically play on, correct? Yes, those are the four floors, uh, two from us and uh, Creighton and UNO, and that's what they put down for the competition courts. And then they, they have eight practice courts in there somewhere. So, like I said, we haven't been in there yet. We actually get to practice on the court we play on tomorrow at 7.40 in the morning. 7.40 a.m.? Yeah, 30 minutes. 30 minutes, that's what we get on the court we're playing on. So, uh, like I said, this can be a wild deal, and... You know, teams that are playing tomorrow might have somewhat of an advantage because they've been in there and experienced it and played in that environment. So, uh, yeah, that's, it, that's it, the plan tomorrow. It looks like there's about a 10-foot curtain between the courts, and then there's space above the curtain. So it's very much like a club tournament. Presumably you're going to be able to easily hear the whistles from the, the courts next door. No question, you know, and I'm I'm curious how that's going to go and how distracting that's going to be, and is it going to, you know, you hear a whistle and stop on your court. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it'll be interesting. Maybe the freshmen will have an advantage because they're accustomed, having just been high school players, of playing in these big old convention centers with all the whistles going. I don't know how in those high school tournaments they can keep track of what whistle belongs to what match. Yeah, I know. <clears> there <throat> must be an art to it. Of course, I haven't coached in club in, in centuries. So uh, and when I coached club, it was much different back then than it is now. Um, so uh, maybe, maybe I'm the only one that's uh, worried about it. How about the low ceilings? I mean, the, the, uh, you think that you might come into play? I, yeah, I can't tell how low they are, uh, but I'm sure you'll be able to play off of them. Um, but, I, I, you know, again, it's not, not as high as what's in the, the main arena. Uh, but I think it'll probably be high enough just based on what I remember for club tournaments in there. Now, at the CHI uh, Convention Center, it looks like all they have are end zone bleachers. These are metal bleachers. They've just rolled in maybe about seven, eight rows on either end zone. What can you tell us about fans, if any, that, uh, or what personnel will be allowed even in there to watch the first uh, two rounds this week? Well, we have 84 uh, comp tickets that uh, mainly goes to the players and their families. So I'm guessing they'll be at one end will be Nebraska and the other end will be whatever team we're playing sitting in those metal bleachers. And they probably brought the metal bleachers in that way. You know, by the time you sit through one of those on metal bleachers, you're ready to get out of there and, you know, go downtown somewhere. <laughs> they're going to have chiropractors setting up booths 
uh, after those, those metal bleachers are tough. They're very tough. So, and I mean, they are, they are, they look like they're very tight, compact metal bleachers, not ones you're stretching out in. I think people, I think if there's anybody that used to sit in the Coliseum, they might think this is like first, or, or that the Coliseum would be first class compared to these ones. Now, all uh, matches this week, at least, I, I believe, are in this adjacent convention center where usually the you know the Berkshire Hathaway attendees are going crazy buying C's candies and and uh, you know jewelry and all sorts of stuff during the Berkshire Hathaway annual gathering. But uh, why at least early didn't they you know reserve the big arena for at least uh, some of the matches? JB, you're talking. You, you need to talk to people that are in charge of this. So. Uh... I don't know. Uh, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of questions, I think. But, you know, we don't know all the challenges they, that they mm-hmm. have and have to deal with and, the, you know, whatever. It's just, but, you know, Omaha has been great. The hotels are great. Uh, the people at, at the CHI Center are great. And, uh, you know, they, a lot of them are people i i've known there for years that we've been playing there the same same people that are you know ushering people in and i get called coach a lot over there so it's pretty cool and how are your accommodations and how many other teams are staying with you at uh, the husker hotel yeah we have five teams and we're in our hotel uh and uh it's all big 10 teams purdue minnesota wisconsin nice and ohio yeah Got a little Starbucks at the bottom, and we all had our mini rooms all in an area next to each other. So we run into all those teams, and uh, but everybody's kind of you know on the COVID, you know, stay away, don't talk. If the elevator's full, you don't go in it. Um, so uh, that's uh, you know that's kind of how it goes. So it's not super, I guess you know, super uh, friendly. Now, have you congratulated uh, Purdue and Minnesota on their draws? Uh, first thing, JB. <laughs> first thing, we run into Dave Shondell for Purdue, and he goes, this is exactly what he says. Does the committee know that Stiverns is hitting 500 on the year and leading the Big Ten? <laughs> and they, they put you against those other teams? So, uh, you know, I think he was uh, what he was alluding to was, hey, are you kidding me? The draw you guys have. So, well, uh, anyway. Well, the NCAA uh, did not put Brazil in your bracket or Serbia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Purdue, I mean, if you're in West Lafayette right now, you're thinking Final Four. Yeah. Well, Purdue, <laughs> Kentucky. But, you know, they got – they loaded up – they loaded up uh, – the Big Ten uh, in our bracket. There's quite a few teams in there, and and then there's a bracket. I don't think there's any Big Ten teams. So uh, there you go. Five three one five hundred four six eight six. The Huskers and the rest of the field will be playing in the adjacent convention center rooms at CHI. It looks like the main arena will be uh, reserved uh, perhaps for the regionals uh, themselves. And this is the this is the, adja- the adjacent rooms where a lot of conventions are held. It's the kind of facility where you see a lot of uh, high school select team regional uh, tournaments. And coach, the last time I recall you playing in an environment like this was 2004 in Louisville. The regionals. Very, very memory, JB. 
USC and the Huskers, 12-12 in the fifth. I wish I wish yeah. they lost power right then at 12-12 in the fifth. I know. It was an overpass and a misserve that was out by about an inch that uh, cost us that that uh, that match. Against a great USC team. That was a great team we were playing. Oh, who was there outside who torched us? What was her? She was awesome. I think oh. the April Ross. Uh, she was great. Uh, I'll come up with it. K.O. Bernine. K.O. Bernine. She's on the all-time anti-Husker team. She's she's starting on the outside on that team. Yeah, yeah that, was a, that was a really good team. Here we are. We're back for Hour 3. Hope you enjoyed last hour, our volleyball show. Probably our last one of the year until at least the fall when volleyball gets back on track in its normal time slot in the fall. Hope you enjoyed hearing from the Johns. It's always entertaining here, John Cook. John Bader, steer your way through that again. Oscars on the court, 2.30 Thursday afternoon, 2 o'clock pregame coverage. They will face the winner of tomorrow's Texas State-Utah Valley matchup. And hopefully it's a long stay in Omaha for Husker volleyball. All right, coming up this hour, it is Tuesday night. That means Top 10 Tuesday coming your way here in a little bit. And we'll also hear from Coach Klempa, the head coach of the national champion Husker bowling team from over the weekend. Can't wait to hear from the coach and give some thoughts about what his team accomplished uh, last week in KC. Let's so get it going with the top ten. We think them up. We count them down. It's top ten Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. Well, this this uh, we came up with a topic of college sports dynasties, and Tim tipped this off last night when he did Weekend Rewind, and we talked about Husker Bowling winning six NCAAs, eight in, eight overall national championships in just a 23-year period of time. And so I expanded that out and thought, well, let's talk about all college sports dynasties. There's some really good ones. Easy, difficult. How did you guys find this one? Well, it was easier for me because I totally included some sport, some professional teams on here. I didn't get the memo. It was oh. just college. Although I did, I did have a good mix. It's like half college, half pro. So apologies for that. But uh, there, there's at least one pro franchise. You guys won't be surprised to see pop crop up in here. But uh, anyway, hey, at least uh, I'm here to diversify the list. So at least we guaranteed we won't have all the same choices. So 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 it goes sometimes. Tim didn't read the fine print, I guess. <laughs> no, he, he did not, no. So uh, mine, the only thing that made mine difficult was trying to figure out how many of like of the major sports do I put on here. And yeah. so I did try to show some other sports, some love, but I, I kept it mostly to the big three. Um, but I did try and, and spread, spread it out some to some other sports, but... Um, yeah, so that's kind of where, where I went with it. All right. Well, I've got six different sports in my list, so I did really diversify. I'm going to go first. This was my topic, so I'm going to lead us off. My number 10 is USC baseball. The Trojans were a dynasty in the 1970s. They won five consecutive College World Series titles from 1970 to 74. They were a mainstay in Omaha. In fact, you talk about teams that have kind of fallen off, and we've done topics like that. USC baseball would be one of those. It's been a while since they've really been a national power, but they owned this sport during the 70s. Uh, they won 11 titles over about a 30-year span, but five straight from 70 to 74. So USC Trojan baseball is my number 10. 
Good pick. Might see that one uh, a little later on. My number 10, I'm sticking with the Trojans, but I'm going Trojan football, USC football from the period of 1967 to 1979. So it's a 12-year period. That's why I knocked it down way on my list is because 12-year period is it's kind of stretching it thin, but they did have five national championships in those 12 years and two Heisman winners. So still a dynasty worth putting on here. I thought the 12 years was a little stretched out, but I still felt like that was too good to leave off. For, so for that reason, I bumped it all the way down to number 10. All right, that is all good stuff. And by the way, uh, I'm I am the, going to do a live revision uh, of my list as we go along. I'm going to try and fit the criteria here. So I'm going to be frantically <laughs> editing my list. Uh, but luckily, I did have this already to, to, good to go. My number 10, uh, I got to have a homer pick on here. And I, I sided with Husker Volleyball, the John Cook era. I mean, it's still ongoing. So we, we, we aren't ready to close the, the book just yet. But since 2000, uh, Huskers have won four national titles. But, but not just the national titles. They've just been in the conversation consistently consistently year in year out they've either been runners up or they went to a regional final um even that stretch from like 2010 2011 onwards where they made all those final fours and they 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 did end up winning two of them uh but they're just a program and you know yeah i'm being a little bit of a homer i'm you know we just had coach cook on so so what what can you do but um nebraska volleyball is just a perennial champion um you know every year year in year out and the why they enjoy so much fan support um that's unparalleled across the entire sport so husker volleyball easily uh makes my top 10 list at number 10 no need to apologize there all right my number nine i'm going the u miami hurricane football from 83 to 92 they won four national titles that's pretty impressive right They did it with three different coaches. Jimmy Johnson, Dennis Erickson, and Howard Schnellenberger all won titles. One of those really hurts because it was the 83 title, uh, the the Orange Bowl that Tom Osborne went for two. Uh, But, man, were they good. The U, they had all kinds of stars, Bernie Kosar, Michael Irvin. They just had all kinds of great names. And, man, they were kind of the – the the villains of college football in a lot of ways Uh, a lot of people didn't like their swagger uh but man that's that's what kind of made them pretty pretty cool to watch so i go miami hurricane football 1983 to 1992 four national titles during that 10-year period of time they're they're my number nine you don't like me dancing don't let me get in the end zone right (laughs) it's kind of their mantra all right, my number nine, as much as it pained me to put this on here, I've got Iowa Hawkeye Wrestling from 1975 to the year 2000. So we're looking at a period of 25 years, 20 national championships. I mean, that's just absurd. And obviously the, the years could probably go beyond that to even what they're doing right now. But um, just wanted to cut it off there at the year 2000 and just an absolute beast of a program and um, I know Mark, Mark Manning knows that all too well, how, how uh, big of a challenge it is every time you, you wrestle the Hawkeyes. So 20 national titles it. and 25, national year, 25 years will do it. They won it again this year. They did, yes. Yeah. That ain't bad. That ain't bad. Uh, well, my number nine, I'm going with uh, everyone's favorite sport, men's track. Uh, the Arkansas Razorbacks from 1984 till 2000, they won 16 of 17 NCAA Jeez. indoor championships. That ain't bad, including 12 straight from 84 to 1995. Uh, they also had eight consecutive outdoor championships 
from 1992 to, to 99. So I, I don't know if there's something else just in the water down there in Fayetteville that allowed them to do that. Uh, that's a pretty dominant track team. So Arkansas men's track, uh, they pretty much won everything you could, uh, both indoor and outdoor from that stretch. So they're my number nine. Okay, my number eight, I'm going women's basketball. I'm going the Tennessee Lady Volunteers with Pat Summit as their coach. The decade of the 90s, from 99 to 1990, from 19, let me start over, from 1990 to 1999, they were the dominant program. It was uh, taken away from them toward the end of the decade, but we'll get maybe get to that a little bit later. But Pat Summit's teams won four NCAA championships during that decade, including three in a row, 96, 97, and 98. Pretty remarkable run for one of the uh, Mount Rushmore coaches in, in the women's game, Pat Summit. So Tennessee Lady Volunteers, hoops, my number eight. All right, very good. My number eight, switching sports. We, we, a sport that has not yet been mentioned. I've got women's soccer, but North Carolina's version. UNC women's soccer. They played from 1982 to 1997, 15 years, 16 national championships. It's just absolutely absurd what that program has done. It was the premier and still can be the premier uh, dynasty in women's soccer. Probably won't. There's a lot more attention on the sport now than there was back then, so I think it's made it a lot more competitive across the United States. But there, um, with the Mia Hams and all the, the great, you know, kind of sparking the – uh, that USA team that won the World Cup at, at uh, in Los Angeles kind of sparking women's soccer around the country really exploded the sport. I don't know that you're going to see the run that UNC Tar Heel women's soccer had from 82 to 97. That's a good one. Uh, but, Ben, you already had my number eight. And that's, of course, Iowa wrestling, that stretch from 75 to 2000. 26 total seasons. They won 20 national titles. That's not a bad run, uh, not a bad run at all. So, unfortunately, I have to give it up to the Hawkeyes here. But there you go, Iowa Wrestling, my number eight. Okay. My number seven was Ben's eight. Here's where I've got North Carolina women's soccer, just an amazing run. It won't be duplicated again. There's much more parity in the sport. That's good for the sport. But Anson Dorrance was their longtime coach, and he just uh, put together a machine out of there. And but like I said, it won't happen again because there's just too much parity, a lot more solid programs around the country. But man, for almost 20 years, they were the the gold standard of women's soccer in this country. So I've got North Carolina soccer at my number seven. Nice. Okay, two Tar Heel soccer's on the list. All right, my number seven, Greg. You mentioned the program and the sport, but I'm going different time period. You mentioned the '83 to '92 Hurricanes. I'm going to the 2000-2003 Hurricanes. Strictly for the reason that I knew someone would have the other version on there, and I felt like the 01 Miami team in itself deserved Whoa. to have a spot on this list. So Monsters. you go from the 2000 to the 2003 version; they were 35 and three, including that 2001 Miami Hurricanes team, which would go toe to toe to the '95 Huskers for the greatest team to ever put on pads in college football. Um, and I got to experience that while I was alive. So give me the Miami Hurricane football, the U Part 2 version of Miami from 2000 to 2003. All right. Well, my number seven, and this team should be higher up, or this rather this dynasty should be higher up on the list, but my order's all foobar given the last second nature of it throwing together. But uh, this is where I've got UConn women's basketball and Gino Ariema. I mean, they're a team that's that's become synonymous with – just women's basketball and that that sport in general um and even though of course the women's game has, has grown tremendously in the past few years there's not a team 
um, that, that, that comes to mind first uh, before UConn when you think of women's basketball. I mean, they had that incredible 4-0 season back in the 2013-14 year. They had that stretch of four straight consecutive uh, national titles. They also reached the Final Four basically every year. I mean, I think the last year they did not reach the Final Four would have been 2007. Uh, and even that year, they, they went to the Elite Eight. And a couple of years before that, of course, they won the national title three times in a row. Um, I think Gino himself has won, let's see, the national title, I think, 11 times uh, total overall. And they go undefeated in conference every year. So they, to call them a juggernaut's almost underselling it. Uh, UConn women's basketball, uh, good enough to at least be my number seven. Very good. All right, up to number six. I've got Oklahoma football. I, I'm digging deep on this one, guys. Back to the 1948 to 58, that 11-year run. Bud Wilkinson was their longtime coach. Their record during that 10-year span, this will make your jaw drop, 107-8. and eight. <laughs> They lost eight games. They won three national titles. Uh, they had a monster winning streak that Nebraska actually snapped during one of those runs, but 107-8, and eight, remarkable. Obviously, more parity in college football now. It would be hard to duplicate, but, man, was Oklahoma a dynasty for that decade. So Oklahoma makes my list at number six. All right, my number six, I'm going to Oklahoma's rival, the Nebraska Cornhuskers here at Woo! number six from 94 to 97, even throw that 93 season in there, too, as a national runner-up. Uh, partly because we got something in the works right now as a as a team as a broadcast uh, production team, so that's it's fresh on the mind. I've been reliving those memories a lot the last few weeks, so absolutely boosted a couple points because of that. So Nebraska's football dynasty here, number six for me. Well, there you go. Uh, that probably will be making another appearance here on my list shortly. But for another uh, dynasty and another obvious pick here, my number six, Alabama football under Nick Saban. Um, of course, you could also maybe throw to Bear Bryant a little bit, but I think what Nick Saban's done uh, has been infinitely more impressive just because of the era of college football we're in, uh, going from the BCS to the, to the playoff. Um, one, let's see. I think six total national titles, right? Yep, six total national titles. I mean, his worst year, of course, not counting the, the one where he took over mid-year, uh, was 2010 when they won 10 games. I mean, they, they haven't won like games in, in the single digits since 2007. I mean, that that is an incredible run. They're always in the conversation. And, yeah, every once in a while, Dabo's uh, Clemson squad uh, gets the better of them. But, I mean, every other year they're in the, in the national championship game um, and they're winning it. So – Alabama under Nick Saban, uh, they're incredible. It goes without saying. And, uh, yeah, uh, they're my number six. Okay, very good. We're ready to go to the top five. Before we do that, I can tell you to buckle up and put the phone down. It's a reminder from the NDOT Highway Safety Office. My number five has been mentioned. This is where I've got the Iowa wrestling run, the quarter of a century run that they had from 75 to 2000. And it really hasn't dropped off much since then. But, uh, it sits atop the heap in college wrestling. And you go back kind of when that was really started in 75, and there were a lot more wrestling programs, guys, than there are now. That's a, Unfortunately, that's been a sport that has suffered under Title IX. A lot of schools have eliminated their wrestling programs. You go back to our Big 8, Big 12 days, and there's a lot of schools in that league that don't field a wrestling program. Uh, a lot of schools in the SEC don't have wrestling programs. So uh, to do it at kind of the height of that era of 75 to 2000, pretty darn impressive. I've got Iowa wrestling at five. 
All right, my number five has been mentioned. Uh, it has been mentioned by one Tim Curran at his number seven. I've got the UConn women's basketball dynasty from the year 2000 to 2016. Nine national championships. Absolutely absurd, including the undefeated team. Worthy of a spot all the way up at five for me. Nine. Nine. <laughs> Good gosh. My, <sighs> my number five, I'm going to go with uh, Florida State football under St. Bobby. Uh, St. Bobby Bowden, uh, they had a really incredible stretch. Uh, I think he went, uh, let's see, 152-19-1 overall record. That ain't bad. From 92 to 2000, uh, they won nine straight ACC titles and two national championships in that stretch. Uh, That's that's incredible. In fact, I think in that same year, yeah, 1992 through 2000, that same stretch, never lost more than two games an entire season. Um, and, and of course, they won, I think, 10 games like every single year, essentially in that stretch. So uh, Bobby Bowden, uh, probably not beloved around these parts. Uh, you know, certainly Nebraska, no love loss between them and Florida State and some of those matchups they had back in the day. But uh, un- undeniable how good those squads were. So that's my number five is Bobby Bowden's boys in Florida State. Always liked Bobby. I had no, no issues with Bobby Bowden. Now, Miami, some of those coaches? Yeah, I did. All right, my number four, I kind of following Ben on some of these. Here's where I've got the UConn women's program. Nine national championships. That's just remarkable. Gino Arama has just done an amazing job there. Not sure he's quite sustaining it anymore, but they were still really good this year. Just didn't quite get it done last month. But uh, I've got UConn at number four. All right, very good. My number four, I'm going from the women's hardwood to the men's hardwood. I've got Duke basketball here at number four from the period of 1986 to 1994. So we're talking eight years, right? Seven final fours in those eight years. Of those seven final fours, three national runner-ups, two national championships. There's really a, a handful of years you could have picked out for Duke basketball, but this was when Coach K was in his prime and obviously the the Christian Leitner and um, Grant Hill teams of that time period, 86 to 94, the wheelhouse of everybody's hatred of the Duke Blue Devils here at number four. <laughs> besides Except for one, Austin. Uh, yeah, besides Austin, who's, who sat there, teeth clenched uh, beside me. So, uh, But my number four, you guys already mentioned it, so I'll just be brief. The North Carolina Tar Heels women's soccer team won in 21 NCAA tournament titles in 31 years, including nine straight between 86 and 94. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, ain't bad at all. All right, my number three, here's where I've got the Huskers, the 93 through 97 Tom Osborne's teams winning three out of four national championships. They went through a stretch of going 60 and three. That's amazing, incredible run, incredible teams in an era where it was not as easy to win and put together like maybe Oklahoma did in the 40s and 50s. To do it in the 90s, really remarkable run. We're so proud of it. Makes my list of number three. Absolutely. All right. My three has been mentioned by Greg all the way down at number 10. I've got the USC baseball dynasty under Rod Dedeau from um, really the, that entire yeah. span of, of the 70s and into the 80s. Uh, won four straight, uh, five straight actually, from 70 to 74, 11 national championships Ooh. for Division One baseball head coach, all within um, probably 15 years of each other. So Absolutely absurd run. Won't ever happen again with how competitive college baseball is now, much like some of these other um, runs that we have in the 70s and 80s. I think just much more of a dedication to sport um, nationally. But, man, absolutely talk about programs that, you know, live in the shadow of what they once did. USC baseball, that's just absolutely crazy. 
Here's something I want Austin to do. He, he's got time on his hands back there. Look up the last USC appearance in Omaha, and then I want all of us to guess and see if we even come close. Okay. So look up okay. the last time, Austin, look up the last time SC made it to Omaha for the CWS. He's on the case. All right, well, that gives us to, what, my number three, and that would be Nebraska football. Greg just mentioned it from 94 to 97, that incredible stretch there in Osborne's final years, winning the Orange, the Fiesta, the Orange twice again, uh, not losing a single conference game. Of course, 96, they lost a couple games, but uh, 13-0, 12-0, then 13-0, winning the three national titles in that stretch. Uh, that is a fantastic run. Yeah, it gets a little bit of a homer bump, but, I mean, that's a, that, that is a nearly unprecedented run in college football and era worth yeah things were getting pretty tough in the 90s it wasn't 1938 or before the poll era this is, it was big boy stuff so nebraska football in the 90s or late 90s i should say my number three okay all right my number two is the modern day crimson todd under nick saban starting in 08 into what he's been able to do all the way up to now and just seems like when you don't you feel like he's gonna it's gotta end he comes back with another great team like he had this past fall uh, remarkable stuff that he's done there in Alabama. So I've got the current tide at my number two. I align with Greg here, number two, tied from 2008 to question mark. Um, you could have thrown the, the Bear Bryant years from 71 to 80 on there where they won 107 and 11 in that time period. I'm choosing the, the current version just because of how difficult it is to do these days, and everybody seems to still be catching up. Them and Clemson are, are still the, the cream of the crop, and even Clemson's having a hard time to stay on their on their playing field. So give me Bama. All right. Well, my number two, I'm going with a modified version of, of what Greg already had. Is, this is where I've got Oklahoma football. The stretch from 53 to 57 under Bud Wilkinson was really impressive. I mean, you ha- they won 47 consecutive games. Um, yeah. th- that is intense. And that included 27 shutouts and back-to-back national titles in 55 and 56 that that is kind of an awe-inspiring dominance now you do get in the question of how do you compare that to the 90s when you're looking at 40 years later um uh, it's tough it's tough to make that comparison but uh, any either way uh, it's a, just a dominant stretch i think it was nebraska that snapped their streak right i think nebraska's the one that ended the 47 straight Might be right. wins I think that's right. All right, to our number one sports college sports dynasties of all time, and I'm going to the Wizard of Westwood, UCLA, John Wooden's 10 straight national championships, or 10 national championships in 12 years, including seven straight from 1967 to 73. They even had an 88-game winning streak from 71 to 74. Had those great centers and Lou Alcindor, later to be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Bill Walton, who I still think is maybe the greatest college basketball player of all time. So UCLA basketball from 64 to 75, my number one pick. UCLA hoops, number one, not really particularly close, just absolutely unbelievable run and um, I'm sure there are still some people rooting against the Bruins this tournament, even though they're on a magical run, just because of what they did in the 60s and the 70s under Wooden. Yeah, before I reveal my number one, I do have to unfortunately reveal that it was Notre Dame that actually Dame snapped the Oklahoma Street. Okay. The next week, the, they turn around and drub Nebraska 32-7 to in Lincoln, so right. not so great. But my number one, no drama here, same as you guys, UCLA basketball winning seven straight uh, national titles from 67 through 1973. He had the best players in the rule in the world, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton. Uh, they also won 88 straight games from 1971 through 1974. That ain't too shabby. UCLA basketball under John Wooden, my number one. 
Clean sweep. We all go with the Bruins for our number one thing. That was fun. Good stuff. Tim, way to adjust on the fly. Well done. Right? Get pretty good stuff. I mean, I, I don't want to throw my own hat in the ring for best dynasty in terms of compiling top ten lists, but I, I thought I did a pretty, pretty good job on the fly there. Yeah, you what, did what, what you were supposed to do. Good work, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, all right. Hey, we're going to talk to somebody who's got a great streak going as well, and that's Paul Klempa, Oscar bowling coach, Nebraska, the national champs once again. We'll get to Coach Klempa coming up next. We're back for Sunday here on a Tuesday night, and we're going to talk about the national champions. Great to have Oscar Bowling coach Paul Klempa with us here on Sports Sunday. Hey, coach, how are you? What's what's the last couple of days been like for you? I got I got to imagine pretty crazy. Well, you know it has been. You know it's been it's been incredible. Although I just lost a tough game in the driveway, a horse to my kid. But oh. before that, it was really fun. You know, I was having a good time. <laughs> um, <laughs> man, everybody is so proud of you guys. I, I raced home from the baseball game on Saturday and flipped on the TV and kicked back and, and watched your team compete. And a little bit like the way your postseason was, you drop you, you dropped the first game and then come roaring back. What was what was the what was it like inside the alleys that night? It was, you know, the TV show is intimidating if you let it be, obviously, you know, and it's, you know, we've been on TV before. They talk about that on on the show, but as you know, in college athletics, these are the same people that were on the show with us the last time we were on. So for the most of them, it was their first time experiencing it. And it's, uh, it can be intense. Um, it's warm. I mean, the lights are hot, um, but it's a really cool scene. We sure miss the spectators that they usually have, but, yeah. um, yeah, it was a, it was a fun time. Um, the girls really enjoyed it. We prepared well to try to block out all the distractions that TV can bring, and uh, the girls performed just so well. I was so impressed with how well they they were able to block out the distractions and just make shots. It was really they were, impressive. Yeah, they were fantastic. You talk about the lights coming on. Does that change the lanes at all when those lights come on? Is it does it take away some of the oil off the lanes? It does that heat, you know, it's kind of a mineral oil that they use and it does the the lanes tend to change and typically they they get drier quicker. So that means we have to move more often and be ahead of it or else you start leaving those ugly splits and other things like that. So, yeah, it changes them for sure. Educate us all. How how much coaching do you do during a match like that? Quite a bit. I mean, it's kind of like what John Wooden said, the better they're prepared, the less coaching I have to do. Um, but it's there's coaching and then there's adjustments all the time. So sometimes your coaching is is getting them calm, getting them to forget about the last shot, um, keeping them on track. Uh, then there's there's a lot of adjustments. You're always reading what's going on with um, with what the balls are doing. And then as they, you know, you, you're on the left lane, and the last time the girl was there, she struck. It was perfect. She comes back, and the next shot she throws is is, is right on the head pin, and now it's a split. That's indicating that you need to make an adjustment. We try to make guesses ahead of time so that split doesn't happen, but it can be a little bit of a guessing game because obviously the playing field is invisible. So the only indicators you have is uh, knowing how the lanes have responded all week. So you try to outguess them. Sometimes you're wrong and you do leave a split. Sometimes you're right and the girl keeps on striking. So there's a lot of that, a lot of that going on. The more I have to try to get involved in calming them down, obviously the more trouble we're having. But um, basically, as long as they're calm and making shots, it's like chess. You're just trying to, you know, what's the next move or is there one? That type of thing. 
Okay, you lose the first game to Arkansas State. What was the message before you started game two? I went went there a little huddle, and I said, nice ball game. I mean, you started (laughs) with the first six strikes. You had a couple of... Had a couple of blunders, but tip your hat to them. They kept striking. They beat you by seven pins. You bet you both. For the first game on national TV, you shot 217. That's a nice ball game. Now let's flip lanes and let's go. And they felt the same way. It's like, okay. And then we lost, but we had a pretty good game. Just those two open frames in the middle that, that cost us dearly, but they made a lot of good shots. So we just looked at it that way and moved on. Visiting again with, with Husker bowling coach Paul Klempa here on Sports Sunday. Nebraska wins their sixth NCAA championship, their eighth national championship Saturday night, beating Arkansas State. Do I have this right? Did you guys drop your first match in the regionals? Yes. Is that right? The regionals. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a lot to that. We, we, we were a two seed. We lost to the 15 seed. Oh. And it was, it was what's called a mega match. It's, it's, if it goes the distance. It's a four-hour match, and we lost that match to the 15 seed. And that wasn't the extent of it, as I talked about earlier in a press conference today. That whole morning on that Wednesday was just a disaster. We walk in there, we lose that match, the opening match to the 15 seed. Then we go out to try to get out of the place and go get some lunch and clear our head. Well, miscommunication with the bus driver, he's not even there. So the only way to get the team fed and relaxed, we had to walk a couple blocks in the rain to get some food. And we walk back with the food, and we sit outside in the wet concrete meat. And I just told the team, I said, you know, this couldn't have been a worse start. I mean, this is, I couldn't have scripted it any worse. You know, this is not how it's supposed to go. It's so bad that it's laughable, and it can only go up from here. So let's just be still and wait for the universe to flip, because we deserve better than this. We were more prepared, way more prepared than to play like we did, and then, have to do all this and put up with everything that's happened so sure enough we just waited it out and we went on to win our next seven matches which included the national championship match that's remarkable i don't know that people maybe can grasp how remarkable it is to drop game match one of the regional play and then to come back and win a national title i don't know maybe maybe it happens more than i think i I can't imagine that's happened more than once or twice in the history of the sport no it doesn't happen and the thing was not only did we lose that first match, but of course at that point it's double elimination. So that means every match from that point until we reach the final four. Once we reach the final four on Friday, Resets. everything yep. reset. Yeah. But the first two days, Wednesday and Thursday, was a double elimination fourteen bracket. There was four of them going on in the regions, and Vanderbilt was in our region, and so we got through the next couple matches after losing that to the fifteen seed, and now we had to beat Vanderbilt back to back matches on the same night. So, I mean, it, that was about a 16-hour day. And it came right down to the final game and the final frame where our anchor needed a double, and she got it to win the region. I mean, it was just that intense. That's fantastic. Uh, talk yeah. up, tell, me, tell our audience a little bit about some of these young ladies and, and who, who was key for you. And, I, I mean, I know it's a special group. Anytime you hang a banner, it's going to be a special group. But just lay out a few names for us that, that had really, really remarkable seasons for you. Well, in that Vanderbilt match in the ninth frame, in order to set our anchor up to be able to win it, Cassidy Ray, who's a senior from Illinois, had to strike in the ninth or else mathematically it was over. Well, sure enough, she labels it. She strikes, sets up our anchor, who's Crystal Elliott, who's a transfer from Duquesne, who came here this year. And her numbers are tops in the nation. So here shortly when we vote on the 
on the postseason, the player of the year in All-American, she should be the bowler of the year, which would be our second one in a row. Um, but Cassidy Ray and Crystal Elliott um, played tremendously. Um, Kayla Verstrady, who's a redshirt freshman, uh, played outstanding in the three-hole. And then we got these two players in the top two holes, which the top is um, Michelle Guaro from Mexico, and the two-hole is um, Gwen Maeha from Hawaii. And those two, when they're going, that's really helpful because our bottom three are like cleanup hitters. It's just, you know, they're all four, they're all in the four holes in a baseball lineup. So we get through those first two, and thankfully on the show they were striking. And once we get through those two, then it's just cleanup hitter, cleanup hitter, cleanup hitter. And it was wonderful. It's a great group. Uh, I'm real proud of them. When do they name the Bowler of the Year, Coach? You know, I think the voting's happening. If it isn't sometime this week, it's early next. So you should be hearing about it. Very good. Well, Coach, congratulations. I know I'm sure it's been a whirlwind. We saw you come out at the baseball game on Sunday and come out on the field and got a great ovation from the Husker fans out there. Everybody is so proud of you and the, and the young ladies in that program. It was a blast watching you get that thing done the other night. And uh, go, go, go beat your son now at a horse or whatever you're playing out there in the driveway. <laughs> I will do. I'll do my best. He's pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> 